Merritt Street, we're building a new morning show where our guiding principle is to always value your time. We'd love for you to join us. Be part of our community. Each morning will be packed full of news, information, advice, and a lot of fun. And we promise we'll never waste your time. I'm Dominique Soxa. I'm Fanchon Stinger. Join us for Morning on Merritt Street. 8 a.m. Eastern, 7 Central. Essential Television. By all accounts, Erin Caffey was a sweet, soft-spoken 16-year-old who had a voice like an angel. She was active in church, sang in the choir, and always had a ready, if somewhat shy, smile for everyone she met. She also instigated the murders of her entire family. He finally said, okay, go, go kill my parents, my mother and my father. The woman that brought me into the world, people that have fed me and clothed me and housed me and loved me every day of my life, sure, go kill them. That was from an interview that I conducted with Aaron Caffey. And it wasn't just any interview. That was the very first time since the murders that she had spoken about that brutal and disturbing night. It was, in fact, late into the night. In the early hours of March 1st, 2008, when Aaron and her girlfriend, Bobby Johnson, waited in the car outside the Caffey home while inside... Aaron's boyfriend, Charlie Wilkinson, and Charlie's hunting buddy, Charles Wade, shot and stabbed Aaron's mom, dad, and two innocent younger brothers. Before leaving, they robbed the house and then set it on fire. And the robbery yielded $375 in change. Afterwards, the group drove around for a while. Then Aaron and Charlie left. They wanted to be alone to have sex to celebrate. So this guy that you say you're kind of maybe sort of in love with just kills your whole family, then you have sex. What were you thinking and feeling about that? Um, I didn't enjoy it. What Erin didn't realize at the time was her father, Terry, survived the terrible assault that killed her mother, Penny, and two younger brothers. When I spoke with Erin, she admitted that she gave the okay to kill her family, even though she says she thought Charlie and his friend weren't really going to follow through with it. She had said, just do it, and watch them go into the house armed with a gun and samurai swords, but says she didn't really think they were going to do it. The apparent motive? Just days before the murders, Aaron's parents had told her she couldn't see Charlie anymore. Aaron told me that like many teenagers, she was just venting when she said she wanted her family killed, that it was just, and I quote, a freedom thing, and that she was simply caught up, swept along in the events of that horrible night. But is that true? Well, I can tell you that numerous others say, no way. At the time, Erin was never interviewed by the police, was never cross-examined by a prosecutor, but she gave me an exclusive interview from prison 
where I was the first person to ask her the tough questions that everyone, including Terry, her father, had never asked. That's right. She had killed his wife and his two other children, but he had never been able to bring himself to ask her the hard questions. Even though he confessed to me that there were times he just wanted to grab her and shake her and say, what were you thinking? He had never brought himself to be able to do that. So yeah, he wanted to hear the answers. He wanted me to ask those questions. Although she's already revealed to me more than she's admitted to anyone else before, there are still a lot more questions that need to be answered. Will Erin finally confess to being the mastermind behind the murders of her mother and brothers? And there's a twist to this already shocking story. This may not have been the first time Erin asked someone to kill her family. You're listening to Episode 4 of A Family Slaughtered for Teen Love. Mystery and Murder. Analysis by Dr. Phil. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. I'm Dr. Megan Sachs. And I'm Dr. Amy Sloshberg. And we're the host of the podcast Campus Killings. Our show covers some of the most sinister crimes to take place on or around school campuses. Or the cases we discuss have a school-connected theme. And with the new school year comes an all-new second season of Campus Killings, which will debut on September 16th, 2023. But if you want to listen to Campus Killings now, you can binge all the episodes from season one. Available everywhere you listen to podcasts. Within 24 hours of that gruesome night, all four defendants were in police custody. Initially, all four were charged with capital murder, but ultimately prosecutors did not seek the death penalty against Aaron since she was only 16 at the time. For her part in the murders, Aaron could have received life without the possibility of parole. But she took a plea deal that will enable her to be eligible for parole when she turns 59. With Father Terry's permission and blessing, I met with Aaron in Gatesville, Texas, at the Hilltop Unit of the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. My first question was about Terry. Now you learn that your father has survived. Were you more scared or more glad? I'm more scared. Because you thought, we're caught, right? Did you think you're still going to get out of it, you personally, or did you think, oh boy, we're in trouble now? I was in trouble. I want to point out here again that the emotional age of everybody involved here, everyone involved in the commission of this crime, was a big factor. We're talking about emotionally immature, emotionally unsophisticated cognitively underdeveloped individuals. And as a result, when I ask Erin a lot of questions, she's not willing to step up and own her answers. Some of them she just can't or won't verbalize out loud. She just nods her head. She does give an affirmative answer, 
but she just nods her head. Her reaction is, I'm in trouble. That's what you think, feel, and say when you've got caught cutting class, when you come in late to curfew, when your grades weren't what they were supposed to be. I'm in trouble is not what you use to describe the gravity of the consequences when you have orchestrated the murder of your entire family. That seems to be incredibly trivializing the consequences of that evening, an evening that ends with her having celebratory sex. But her responses are what they are, and I let Terry listen to what Aaron had to say. You know, I see what, what she's saying here. She is glad I am alive, that she has a parent left, but I think she is also scared I'm busted. You know, I'm, I'm going to be found out everything that I've done. Because at that point, she knows I can't lie about this and get away with it. Well, it's apparent they're covering stuff up. This has been going on for over a month that we find out that they've been discussing this. I ask her, why did you want your family dead? Was it because of freedom? And she says, yeah, maybe. Well, you know, certainly Charlie's a sociopathic type personality. He was very controlling, always had to know where she was. He tried to isolate her from her family and friends. And I believe that, um, you know, he was convincing her that, you know, your parents are too strict. You just, you're, you're not, they're not allowed you have fun. You know, let's go out and have fun. Don't listen to them. They don't love you like I love you. And so she began to make one bad choice after the other. Having a girl controlled by a, a boyfriend mm -hmm. is nothing new. Mm -hmm. But taking the steps to, to plan out to murder her mother and father and two little brothers, mm -hmm. that's a huge leap from, I love you, they don't. Let's go kill them all. Remember the night of the murders? Aaron was laughing and joking with her family. In fact, they had a pillow fight together. And all the while, Aaron knew what was going to happen later that night. She had actually helped plan the murders. As you might expect, Terry had a hard time wrapping his head around that. That sounds to me astoundingly disconnected. For her to be able to do that knowing what's going to happen. But I think you've got the catalyst here of, of, of this teenage girl who has been making bad choice after bad choice. A, a bad choice is missing curfew. A, a bad choice is getting pregnant. Mm -hmm. But executing a plan to murder your entire family, bad choice just doesn't seem like big enough words to wrap around that. According to the lead prosecutor, Assistant Attorney General Lisa Tanner, there was no doubt that if Aaron wasn't the driving force behind these murders, then she was at least a co-driver. I only had a few hours with Aaron at the prison, so I got right to the point. What is the truth about what happened that night? That I knew about it and was okay with it. I mean, just... You knew they were going to kill him. What Aaron didn't know was that both Charles and Bobby had told investigators Aaron's response to thinking her family was murdered. I played Charles Wade's police interrogation for Aaron to get her reaction. Anybody say anything in the car after y'all left the house? Mm -hmm. What? Uh, Aaron said, holy oh, that was awesome. Did you say that? Did you say, I'm free? No, sir. Charles Wade said you were happier than a kid at Christmas at that point. 
in, in your young brain at the time, was it a victory for you? They were gone and, and you were safe? No. They have said independently that you said you wanted your little brothers killed because they picked on you and that you didn't want them in foster care. And isn't that the truth? You didn't say that. You didn't want them dead. Wasn't it your idea to kill your parents? Really? Because Charlie says it was your idea. Bobby says it was your idea. Bobby's cellmate says that Bobby started talking about Aaron, saying that she was being abused by her parents. Were you abused by your parents? Now, according to reports, Charles Wade agreed to participate in the murders in exchange for $2,000. Part of that payment was supposed to come from the savings that Terry and Penny had hidden in a lockbox tucked away in the laundry room. I asked Aaron about that. Your parents had a lockbox with a combination. Who told Charlie the combination? I, I guess I did. I don't remember that, but I guess I did. Well, they, they had to get it from somewhere. It, let me tell you what Charlie says, and you tell me how much of this you agree with, because I bet you probably agree with most of it, that they came at one point to do this, and the dog was barking, and it woke your father up. And so they left, and you called them and said, come back, I'll keep the dog quiet. Is that true? Mm -hmm. You talked to them six times between 11.46 and 12.48. Then the dog's barking, they leave. You talked to them seven times between 1.22 and 1.58. Because you were, you were talking them in, right? You, were, you had the dog under control, everything was okay. And that's different than what you've been telling your father. Because your father thinks that you were just calling off the runaway. But you, you had your bag packed. You, you were ready to go after the killing. And then they found you at this place, right? Were you hiding under a blanket? You just hoping they wouldn't find you? Where, did you? where did you think you would go the next day? Did you have a plan? Didn't really have a plan. You told this therapist you had broken up and that he came in and killed your family and then framed you for it, right? But that wasn't true, correct? Why did you lie to him? I guess to make myself look good, probably. But aren't you still doing that now? Tell me what you think I mean when I say if you don't come clean and be completely honest that you're never going to heal from this and that your father's never going to heal from it. Mm. People say my dad just wants to brush things under the rug, so to speak, and say that, you know, his daughter didn't know nothing about this. And that's, I mean, I think we've established I did know. But you know, he says, you know, my daughter did not mastermind this. And, I mean, I didn't. And, I mean, I know that all this looks bad and everything, but I didn't know 
what they went in and did that night. You gotta stop victimizing your father. You're part of a plot where two guys go with guns and swords and massacre him and his family and then burn his house to the ground where he has to pull his little boys out of the charred remains, unrecognizable. Now, at some point, you've got to step up and say, I've done enough to this man. He deserves the truth. I've got an entire notebook here where people are saying it is your idea to kill your parents, that you were emphatic to kill your parents. They would say, let's just run away. I mean, now oh, come on, let's just run away. No, I want them dead. I know that's not who you are now, but is that not who you were then? Are they all lying? Or is the truth that you did want them dead? You know, every young girl said, oh, I wish my parents were dead, but I didn't mean it. I know as you are here now today, you don't mean it. I get that, Aaron, I really do. But you've got to own it at the time. I've got your phone records here of, of you calling them in the two time periods, talking them through it, walking them in. You knew they were coming to kill your family. Your father deserves that truth. I know it to be true, you know it to be true. The prosecutors, everybody knows it to be true, but your father's in denial about it. He's out saying, oh, you know, she got caught up in all of this and she's a victim and that's just simply not the case, is it? Are you a victim here? I mean, no. Did you mastermind this crime? Were you the motivating force behind this happening? If not the motivating force, a motivating force. I, I probably added fuel to the fire. You wanted them dead. Tell me what you're thinking. I wasn't thinking that not, I mean, I wasn't like mad, mad at them or anything like, like that. Just, I feel like it just ha happened. You got tired of them bickering and said, just do it. Is that true? I'm sorry? Yes. You gave the command, just do it. You've got to be honest with yourself. You have to be honest with your father. If you do, then you can forgive yourself you can ask and accept his genuine forgiveness. You can't get genuine forgiveness embedded in a lie. You have to tell the truth. In my opinion, Aaron has still not been forthcoming. Remember, all the young people who participated in this terrible crime were interviewed separately. And everyone, with the exception of Aaron, gave the same story. Bobby Johnson backed up Charles Wade's account of that night. She recalled how Charlie had repeatedly asked Aaron to consider just running away as the group had driven around before the murders. Charlie kept saying, are you sure you want to do this? Aaron's response, why are you asking me? If you love me, you'll do it. 
She also revealed that after the killings, Aaron seemed elated and said that she was, quote, free. In fact, Aaron had wanted to get out of the car to make sure everyone was dead. And again, according to both Bobby and Charles, it was Aaron who had insisted that her brothers be killed. But there's another twist to this horrific story. It turns out this was not the first time that Aaron asked someone to kill her family. As part of their investigation, the police interviewed everyone who knew Aaron. You have to remember, this was a very small town. So when I say interviewed everyone who knew Aaron, that's not as sweeping a statement as you might think. But when they got to her ex-boyfriend, Michael Washburn, they were stunned. Here's Michael talking about his relationship with Aaron. Aaron and I met when we were about 16 years old at a church camp. Aaron got along with everybody. Aaron's parents, Penny and Terry, were very strict. Aaron used to sneak around and disobey her parents. I did not see any troubling signs in Aaron. One day I said, how are you and your parents doing? And she said, I just wish they were dead. A few weeks later, Aaron asked me if I would murder her whole family and burn the house down. What'd she say? She said to, you know, after you do it, you can burn the house down and nobody would ever know. Okay. Um, you did not react well to that. No. What, what did you say to her? You crazy bitch, get the hell out of my house. Did you have any sense of why she wanted to kill her parents? I mean, she, she's told me that, you know, her parents wouldn't, wouldn't let her be around me and wouldn't, you know, wouldn't let us be by ourselves or whatever, and I was fine with that. But I mean, I guess she had, you know, other plans. Did you ever talk to her about it again? No. Okay, so that was it. You, you had that one conversation. You said, yeah. nah, it's crazy, get out of here. And so you two broke it off at that point. Right. Aaron and I never spoke again after the last conversation. Never thought Aaron would actually have her family killed. This was exactly the same thing that happened with Aaron and Charlie. Her parents had made them split up, and Aaron had talked about murdering them. But even presented with this new information, Terry continued to make excuses for his daughter. What's your reaction to knowing this? Well, I'd like to add to this, no doubt. Certainly he's going to be upset at, with us, and he made this statement that, well, her parents were just too strict. Well, yeah, we were strict. We were at church one day. We're having a fellowship, and one of the ladies came up to us and said, we have a situation outside. I had to separate the two of them, Michael, Michael. and Aaron together at a picnic table. She was sitting. He was in front of her and trying to grope her, uh -huh. go up her shirt. I've met with him in a hallway at the church and asked him to leave. And so, yes, I was a little strict. Right. But this is evidence, testimonial evidence, mm -hmm. that before she was dating Charlie. Mm -hmm. She had in her mind to have her parents killed. Mm -hmm. She told me, she said, I was mad at you because you busted us or you made us split up and then I was angry and told him, I wish y'all were, were dead. That's what she had told him. Mm -hmm. So she told you part of the, mm -hmm. what he's saying, but not all of what he's saying. Um, well. Uh, it was three weeks before the murders that she asked Michael to kill her family, according to Michael. So 
here we now have one, two, three, four people that are testifying. Michael, with, with nothing to gain, these three that we looked at, their statements, with a lot to lose if they lie. The death penalty hangs over their head if they tell a lie. So it, it has to start beginning to be clear that you have to entertain the possibility that this was her desire to do and not that she was just a passenger. Can you agree with that? Well, I agree with that. You're probably listening to this and thinking, how can this father be so blind? I mean, everybody involved are independently telling the same story, and that story being that she was the mastermind behind this, that his daughter is the one that drove this and wanted them killed, that she specifically mentioned her little brothers, that she's the one that wanted to go in and make sure everyone was dead, that she was happy afterwards. That paints a very dark picture. And I know some of you are thinking, how can he be so blind? Well, think about it as a parent. Is what she done horrific? Of course it is. Would you be just so upset with your child that you might never be able to forgive them? Of course. But a part of you just doesn't want to believe it. A part of your mind, a part of your psyche just cannot seem to go there and see them in that way. Because now when he looks at her, she's the same Aaron that he had the pillow fight with. She's not the Aaron that's out in the car saying, just do it and kill my brothers while you're there. He's never seen her like that. He's only seeing her the way she is now when she sits there like Minnie Mouse. She's very small, very petite, very quiet, very reticent to answer the questions. And she just doesn't seem capable of the things that she's being accused of. And People make decisions based on what they see, based on what they experience. I've learned that with juries over the years. They make decisions on what they see and hear, not on what they don't see and hear. You often wonder why they dress up somebody that's been accused of being loose sexually, and they dress them up like a school marm if it's a woman when they come into court and think, well, the jury can see through that. Well, maybe... But day after day, seeing this woman in conservative clothes, behaving in a conservative way, conducting herself appropriately, that begins to weigh. If you've got some thug, but all of a sudden he's in a suit and a tie and his hair is cut, and you look at him and you think, wow, it just doesn't seem like, I just can't imagine. But then you see him on the security video, and they've got on a black jacket, and they're kicking the windows in, and you go, oh, wow. It's what they see and hear. And if you don't have that security video to show them the different side, what they see and hear can get stimulus control. And all of his experience of Aaron has been the star in the choir at work, the pillow fight, the night she had everyone murdered. It's very hard to overcome that, particularly when you don't want to believe what it is that you're being asked to believe. So her appearance and her history with him have stimulus control, and he doesn't want to believe what it is that he's trivializing. Those two things are a powerful combination. Perception is reality, and she has perceptual control of him. But then there's also the matter of the letter Aaron wrote to Terry on Father's Day. I spoke with Aaron about that. You wrote a letter 
to your dad from prison. You said, Dear Daddy, none of this was your fault. If anything, it was mine. And I'm paraphrasing here. I never wanted any of this to happen. I was just going with what he was telling me. He was feeding me all of these lies. I got caught up in him and I feel so guilty. You're talking about Charlie there, right? What lies was he feeding you? Mm-hmm. If I just kill my parents, everything will be okay. You said, even though this happened, I still feel sad, but at the same time glad I'm free from the pressure that was being put on me. What? What pressure? Mm. Being in a relationship with Charlie. You mean pressure from Charlie, okay. So you say, I'm sad, but at the same time glad that I'm free from the pressure. So the death of your mother and two little brothers, was that a good trade? Here's what I worry about. Healing doesn't begin until you have the truth. And you have told so many different stories and and theories here, none of which comport with the facts. You told the police what I read to you here. That was a lie, right? Then you you told your father a story. You, You told one of your counselors a completely different story, right? You said you were kidnapped, but that was a lie, right? And I know you haven't talked to Charlie since this happened, correct? And you haven't talked to Charles Wade, and you haven't talked to Bobby, you haven't talked to anybody. But the police have talked to everybody. And they are all telling exactly the same story, even though they were interviewed independently. They all tell the same story, and then you tell a different one. And you haven't told the truth yet, have you? When I asked Erin that last question about not yet telling the truth, she shook her head no. In fact, you didn't hear a lot from Erin in this part of our interview. That's because, again, she had a hard time answering. Mostly, she just nodded or shook her head. Again, why can't she verbalize her answers? because she doesn't want to own it. It's like if I say it out loud, it just gets more real. But if she just gives a little nod, then she hasn't really, really owned it. In the letter that she wrote, she says, none of this was your fault. If anything, it was mine. To me, that really sounds like an absence of both empathy and remorse. When you read that, did you think, yes, you're right, it it is your fault. Yeah, I mean, I was angry. I mean, there was times I wanted to go back there and grab her and just shake her. Why? Thank you. I was angry. (laughs) Thank you. You need to to allow yourself... Mm -hmm the right to, to feel that. Not that I don't want you to forgive her, but right. at the same token, if you're gonna drive yourself crazy mm-hmm. if, if you don't allow yourself to acknowledge what's done here. She says, I never wanted any of this to happen. Do you believe that? I really believe deep down she didn't want her parents killed. I really do. It just got in overhead. 
But you know that she planned this, right? right. I believe that she, yes, she did. She had part in the planning. And, and you know that they were going to kill all of you the week before this happened. Mm -hmm. But your father passed. Right. So this wasn't just like she in a fit of adolescent rage made a bad choice. Mm -hmm. This was planned across time mm -hmm. for several weeks or months. Mm -hmm. She had many opportunities to say, uh, mm -hmm. bad idea. Yeah. Uh, she said, I was going with what he was telling me. He was feeding me all these lies. I got caught up in him and I feel so guilty. I love you even though this has happened. I still feel sad. But at the same time, I'm glad that I'm free from the pressure that was being put on me. Well, I told Aaron, I said, it would be better to deal with the pressures of what was going to talk to us. You know, even if we would have found out the things you're doing, yes, we would have been upset, but you would still, if you were to talk to us about it, at least your mom and brothers would still be here. A, a narcissistic, antisocial personality doesn't know what to say. They can mimic things mm -hmm. that they see others do, but they don't know what to say. She says, even though this has happened, I still feel sad, but at the same time, glad. About what? What in the world would a reasonably thinking individual be glad about? There's, there's that disconnect that's there that tells me that there's a lot more going on here than what we've talked about. You can't change what you don't acknowledge. And don't you owe it? to your wife and your two little boys to make sure that the truth is known and that she owns what she did here? Well, absolutely. Because I, if they're looking down on this, they're going, you know, what about us? What about fighting for the truth for us and for you? We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. You know, Terry's wearing a lot of different hats here, and he has to look at this from different points of view. Because the more he pins on Aaron, the more he has failed as a father. Think about it. He's the one that raised her. He's the one that installed the values. He's the one that put the moral compass inside this child's mind and heart. Because he sees himself as the leader of this family. He's the one that stands in the door. He's the one that has hanging over his garage. As for our house, we stand with the Lord. Well. 
How much of what she did is he blaming on his own failure to get through to and reach his daughter? There are turns of phrase in the letter that she wrote that speak volumes to me and mean nothing to him. She says in her letter, None of this was your fault. If anything, it was mine. Like, what do you mean, if anything, it was mine? If everything, it was you. She's saying, like, if you're going to blame somebody, blame me. We, we do. We do blame you. It's like you're, you're giving a concession here. Like, don't be hard on yourself. It was me. Everybody knows it was you. You're making no concession here. You're making no gift here. That goes over his head. And she says, I'm sorry, but, but, I mean, that's a big word. But means forget everything I just said. I'm now going to tell you how I really feel. She says, I am sorry, but I was out from under the pressure. I was free. I mean, but means that I'm now getting ready to tell you what really motivated me to do what I did. So she's saying, none of this was your fault. What she really means is this was your fault. I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry. When I deconstruct that letter, it reads to me, this was all your fault, and once I did it, I felt free. That's what she wrote to him after the fact, after this had the time to land on her. This is what she wrote on Father's Day. To the father she had shot, to the father whose wife she had killed, whose children she had hacked to death. Don't blame yourself. Oh, how gracious of you. But yet, that's not how he sees it. What we don't want to forget in this terrible tragedy is that there were innocent victims here. Aaron's mother and Terry's wife, Penny. Aaron's brothers, 13-year-old Matthew and 8-year-old Tyler. Before I said goodbye to Aaron at the Hilltop Unit at the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, I asked her if she had anything to say to her brothers and mother, if they could hear. Matthew and Tyler are hearing this right now. What would you say to them? I'm sorry. I think that's all I could say. And to your mother? She was, she was right. She was right about? Everything. Was she a good woman? Was she a good mother? Did she deserve what you might happen here? Now, look, I understand that this is difficult, and as I said, she's at an emotional age that she doesn't have the maturity to really grasp the gravity of what she's done and own the tragedy of what she's created here and the impact. She doesn't have the ability to sit there and understand what she's taken from her little brothers, the life that she's taken away from them. And I don't just mean in having them killed. I mean what they missed, the joy of growing up and having girlfriends and playing sports and living their lives and going camping and bonding with each other and with their father and with their mother, finding girlfriends, eventually getting married, having their own family, the joy of seeing their children grow up, having grandchildren. She has no capacity to consider what she's taken away from those young men. 
She has no empathy for what her mother went through when somebody's hacking her in the neck with a samurai sword. The pain and the fear, the last thoughts going through her mind in this world. She spent her life living in the service of the Lord, and she spent her last minutes in stark terror, fear, and excruciating pain. And her father, lying in the floor, unable to move, hearing his wife hacked to death, and hearing, die, bitch, die, and hearing the two murderers standing in the door, dividing up the boys between them, you kill this one, I'll kill that one, knowing my job is to protect, and yet here I lay. The pain that he must carry the rest of his life, knowing that when it came down to that crucial moment, he could not protect his wife, he could not protect his boys, and the fear in his heart, thinking, my innocent daughter is laying up there, they're going to do something terrible to her, and what it must feel like finding out that she was behind it all. If she understood the gravity of that, she would have said something more than, I'm sorry, I I think that's all I could say. She was right. She was a good woman. She was a good mother. You noticed when I asked her what she would say to them, she did not ask for forgiveness. She did not apologize for what she robbed them of. She did not acknowledge the pain, the hurt she put them through. She did not acknowledge the betrayal of the love and bond that she had broken. She just said, sorry. She was a good mother. Was she being kind of sweet? Was there some sincerity what she said? Yeah, maybe. But, wow. In comparison to what she was talking about, there wasn't much emotional energy invested in it. When I ended the interview, she immediately wanted to connect with Terry. She wanted to connect with her father to try to smooth things over because I had exacted some answers from her that she had never given before. When I went to interview her, not minutes after I was gone, she called you, did she not? And said, don't you go talk to him. Don't you be involved with him because he's trying to make me out to be a monster and say that I'm the mastermind of this whole thing, correct? Correct, correct. So what she told you isn't true. Did she characterize my interaction with her accurately? No. She acknowledged that she said, yes, just do it. He heard that three of these murderers, three of the people involved, were all saying the same thing about her when they had no time to rehearse their stories. It gave him a different point of view here, and she's like, "Uh uh-oh, I got damage control to do here. Because if he believes everything that's just come out here, he may not come back. I might have alienated him. So clearly, she folded under some of the cross-examination, and she's got to try to do repairs here. She's got to do some undoing. She's clearly trying to manipulate the situation. Now, Terry has made the decision to forgive his daughter, something that many perhaps could not understand or feel like you would be able to do. I did want to leave him with some hope. I need to tell you my thinking for a minute, and you do with it as you will. I respect and admire the fact that you love your daughter and that you want to forgive her. Mm-hmm. When I talked to her, it was clear to me um, that she's in turmoil. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, a smooth running psychopath, or as we call them today, antisocial personalities, have no capacity for empathy or guilt. She does have some capacity for that. She does have feelings. That's something to build on. Mm -hmm. But if this young woman is allowed to continue to perpetrate a lie, then she will never, ever get beyond it. Right. She'll never get beyond it. Here's what I believe. I believe that 16-year-olds don't really have a full appreciation for the concept of death right. and the choices they make. I mean, her brain isn't even through growing yet. It'll right. grow till she's 25. Uh, this wasn't a runaway gone bad. This was a poorly thought out strategy on her part to be free. I think she is lying by omission when she tells you, I just got caught up in it. She has to own this. And if you don't require her to do that, then she will continue to live a lie. And I don't know if you are afraid that you won't be able to forgive her. If you ever admit to yourself that she was a, a driver in this evil doing, but I have more confidence in you than that. I think you will be able to forgive her. No You're right, no matter what, I forgive her. But I appreciate what you said, that you see that there is hope for rehabilitation for her to get help and the counseling she needs. She needs to take ownership for her part in this. She can have a, a life with some freedom and joy, yes. but not while she's living with this lie. That's just my opinion. The other three involved in these terrible murders seem to have faced up to what they did. Charlie Wilkinson, who was so in love with Aaron that he described the feeling as an instant vibe and electricity, has taken responsibility for his actions. He is serving a life sentence without the possibility of parole. In a prison interview, he added that if he were on a jury, he would have voted to stick a needle in his own arm. But he still maintains that the murders were Aaron's idea. If she wanted to call them off, they would not have happened. Now, anytime someone tells me something, I always look for their motivation. What do they have to gain from what they're telling me? Now, here is someone that has a life sentence without the possibility of parole. He will never draw another free breath the rest of his life. He will die in that prison cell. He's not getting out. There's nothing that can happen. He has no reason to lie. He says if he was on the jury, he would give him the death penalty. So he is owning it. He's saying what I did was horrific. But he's saying, let's just be honest. This would not have happened but for her. And I use the term but for differently than a lot of people because when I look for causation, I do what's called a but-for test. Think about a drunk driver. But for getting in the car and driving to a bar, and but for overindulging, and but for getting in the car, starting it up and pulling out on the highway, and driving drunk, but for crossing the center median and going head-on into a family of four, those four people would be alive. So those are links in the chain. But for going to the bar, but for overindulging, but for getting in the car drunk, but for driving down the street, link, 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 link. And what he's saying here 
is, but for Aaron coming up with the idea, but for Aaron insisting on it being done, but for her failing to call it off when he offered the alternative of running away instead, those three people would be alive today. He's saying, I did it, and I'd give me the death penalty if it was up to me. But make no mistake, the first link in this chain was Aaron Caffey. Charles Wade, he is also serving life without parole. He's expressed regret for causing grief to so many, saying, I'm not proud of what I did or what I was part of, but no matter what we do, we cannot change the past and bring them back to life. If we could, it would have already been done. Now, you know, I've talked about emotional age and lack of cognitive sophistication. Let's take that sentence apart. I'm not proud of what I did or I was part of. He would have done a lot better if he would have just put a period at the end of that sentence. But he goes on to say, but no matter what we do, we can't change the past and bring them back to life. If we could, it would have already been done. What does that mean? He says, I'm not proud of it, but I can't undo it. Again, what he's not saying is, oh my God, I am so sorry to Terry Caffey for the pain that I've caused him. I am so sorry to Penny Caffey for the pain that I've caused her standing over her with this samurai sword hacking her to death. I am so sorry to these innocent young boys who weren't witnesses to this. We just went up there and and murdered them for no reason. It's not that I'm not proud of it. I'm ashamed of it. I am so sorry for this. And I'm going to spend the rest of my life being sorry for it every day. And I just pray that somehow, some way, God will forgive me. I know that man doesn't forgive me. I, I have to pay the price for this in the law, but I hope somehow or another... God will forgive me. What I've done is horrible, and I'm sorry, and there's no excuse, and I hate it. I've done the worst thing you could possibly do to people that didn't deserve it, and I'm ashamed, and I'm sorry. All he says is, I'm not proud of it. Well, that's a long way from I'm ashamed of it, and I'm sorry for it, and please, please forgive me. These people don't get it. Bobby Johnson also pled guilty. She's currently serving a 40-year sentence. She'll be eligible for parole after 20 years. So she could be out by the time she's 40, and she could live 40 years of her life free and moving about. 40 years that Penny doesn't have. 40 years that the two boys don't have. As you know, Erin pled guilty as well, and in January of 2009, she received two life sentences to be served concurrently plus an additional 25 years. Now, when you do the math, I'm not going to bog down in the law, but she's eligible for parole in about 40 years. So at about age 59, she'll be eligible for parole. Doesn't mean she'll get it, but she'll be eligible. Now, from everything that I can find out as of today, Erin is still sticking to her I made some horrible mistakes line. This does not bode well for her. She's got a lot of time to think about this. She's got another 40 years to think about this. That's another 10 presidents. Be just, that's a long time. But now is when this is fresh. Now is when this strikes at the heart of who she is. Parole boards, investigators, profilers, people that put together the investigations and try to give the parole board some kind of a profile, some kind of a 
picture of what kind of inmate they've been and how they've adjusted to what they've done, what kind of ownership they take. I made some bad choices. I made some horrible mistakes. It doesn't resonate well with those people. They need people that strip it down and get right and understand it and own it all the way. Terry still makes the long trip to Gatesville, Texas, where Aaron is incarcerated. Shortly after the murders, he attempted to rebuild his life and married a co-worker. But it was too soon after the murders, and it didn't work out. He met his current wife, Karen, while he was speaking at church, and they married in June 2013. Since that time, they've started a new family and have one child together. Now, Terry has a new normal. Supper bubbles on the stove, children's playthings are scattered about the house, but signs of his former life are always close at hand. Photos of his deceased sons, a page from Penny's charred book is framed and on display. There are also photos of Aaron, grinning and lovely in a standard-issue prison jumpsuit. For Terry, forgiveness was a process. He admits that they no longer talk about the tragedy, that it's part of my life, but he says he's not going to let it consume his life. Aaron may never come to terms with what she's done because she's diluting herself as to her role in this. And as each year goes by, the pain of the loss, the sharpness of that tragedy is dulled. And pain is a great motivator. Make no mistake, pain is not always a bad thing. We don't ever want to stay in a state of pain, but it's not always a bad thing. And when it gets blunted, it becomes less of a motivator. You know, we tend to move away from pain and towards safety, security, and comfort. And the longer that this goes by without her facing up to the gravity of what she's done, the less likely it's going to be that she ever gets real with what's taken place here. She's emotionally immature, and when you read that letter, that pretty much sums it up for you. Terry, he's a survivor. He is a deeply religious man, and his spirituality and his membership in a religious community has really helped him get through this. He's leaned on that very heavily. Is he trying to teach his daughter about true, unconditional love by not judging her, by not resenting her, by not doing and saying the things that you think might be more authentic from him? Is true, unconditional love something that she may never be able to understand? You know, who knows? At this point, I think Terry has made the adjustment that he's going to make, and I think the time that he would ever get real with his daughter and sit down and have the conversation with her that I think he would have needed to have and would have helped her, I think is long since passed. I believe it would have been a gift to her if he would have sat down with her, looked her in the eye, and say, you tried to murder me and you did murder my whole family. At least don't insult me now by trying to trivialize it and undo it. At least own it now. Don't do what you did so horribly and then sit there and try to trivialize it now. That's insult to injury. At least own it. Tell the truth. You owe me that. Tell me the truth. 
I dissected the letter for him. I dissected the behavior for him. So no rational person could fail to see that she is manipulating, obviating, doing everything she can to deflect. And if he had done that, and if he does do that, then she may have a chance to get real about this and have a chance to heal from it. But as long as he plays along and lets her live this lie, lets her pretend that she didn't really think they were going to do it, that they were just going to run away, that this just got out of hand, that this was just a bad night. You can't change what you don't acknowledge. And what she's not acknowledging is that in her selfish, narcissistic way, she decided to slaughter her whole family so she could be with somebody she met three months ago. And it wasn't the first time. And when you ask, what is it about a parent-child dynamic that can create this kind of tragic scenario, I can tell you that it is simply a matter of a child that has been terribly sheltered and has a great sense of entitlement. She believed that she was entitled to be free and have what she wanted at any price. If it was the price of four people's lives, that she was entitled to exact that price in order to have her freedom. There was immaturity involved here. It took less than 24 hours to solve this crime. If reason was lard, these four couldn't grease a skillet. There was no reason here. They didn't have a plan. All they had was impulse. They were short-sighted. They didn't look at the consequences of their actions on their own lives. To Aaron, not thinking that anybody was going to wonder why she survived. To Charles Wade, deciding to keep his bloody boots in case they got away with it so he would have two pair of boots. It is just so sad that these selfish, easily led, narcissistic people put so little value on human life. And the only way that happens is if people are raised up without empathy. If you have empathy, you have your ability to put yourself in the position of those little boys and say, how would I feel? How would I like it if someone came into my room and cut my throat and hacked me to death? What must that little boy be feeling when that happened? If they had the capacity for empathy, they would put themselves in that child's position and say, I would have to be some kind of monster to do that. If they had empathy for this mother and father, they would look at it and say, they have the right to put up boundaries in their own family. And nothing short of an absolute coward would ambush a man and a woman in their beds at night. What kind of coward does that? And it's a coward who has no feeling, no empathy for their victims. These weren't men. They didn't call Terry out and say, look, I'm going to stand up against you for your daughter. I stand up for her. She wants to be with me, and I'm taking her, and you can't stop me. I mean, that would have been inappropriate, but at least they would have been forthcoming about it. But no, they sneak in like rats in the night and ambush defenseless people like the cowards they were. It's a lack of morality. It's a lack of empathy. And that is a dangerous combination. It's misguided love when you take 
a young girl like Erin that is capable of this sort of thing and put her together with Charlie Wilkinson, who's capable of this kind of thing, wow, what kind of union would that have been? Had they gotten away with this, do you think they would have lived happily ever after? Do you think they were capable of a serious commitment? Of course not. You know, I talk a lot about victimology, people that have been victimized by criminals and even victims of bullies in school. But if you know me, you know I also talk about the bullies. Because for every parent that has a child that's being bullied, there's a parent that has a child that is a bully. And you need to ask yourself, have you talked to your children about empathy? Have you talked to your children about whether or not they have developed and are developing the ability to put themselves in the position of other people? You might recognize that your child is being bullied, but do you recognize if your child is a bully? Do you talk to your child about whether or not they are sensitive to the impact they have on those around them? I wonder what would have happened if Charlie Wilkinson's parents or whoever raised Charlie Wilkinson had sat down with him and said, how do you think so-and-so would feel if you stole his lunch money and he went hungry for the day? How do you think so-and-so would feel if you vandalized the car that they worked really hard to buy and don't have insurance on? Let's talk about that. Let's do a role play. Tell me how that person would feel. Would you want to feel that way? Let's say a weaker boy gets beat up after school. What do you think he would say to himself when he got home and realized that he had been afraid and got beaten up? If someone broke into your house tonight and tied you to a chair and cut your throat, how would you feel? If you cause people to think about how horrific an experience it would be for them, would it cause them to take pause before they visited that kind of pain on someone else? We don't teach it in school and we don't teach it in church because it's too dark. And some people learn it by osmosis. Some people learn it by the role model of their parents. But what about the Charles Waits and the Charlie Wilkinsons and the Aaron Caffeys of the world? Where do they learn it? They don't learn it in school. They don't learn it in church. The only place they're going to learn it is at home. I'm a strong believer that we create our own experience. And I'm a strong believer that the job of any parent is to prepare their child for the next level of life. And I'm the incurable optimist. I think it's never too late. And I talk about parenting sometimes, and I talk about reparenting sometimes. So maybe you've never had these conversations with your children. And maybe they're now in high school or even off to college. But it's not too late to have these conversations. You never get through parenting. My boys are now in their 30s and 40s, and I still parent. I still reach out to them. They reach out to me. You never finish parenting. You just start doing it from a long distance. So ask yourself, what are the things that you want to make sure that your child is sensitized to when they meet people? Do they pay attention? Does this person seem really immature and selfish? Do they have empathy for others? Do they brag to me about how they conned or cheated or victimized somebody they knew in the past? If they do, 
Are they going to be bragging to somebody in the future about how they victimized me? Kids don't think about that unless you help them think about that. So it's important for you to talk to your kids about not victimizing others, and it's important for you to talk to your kids about watching out for those who might victimize them. And the way to spot those people is if they're not empathetic, if they're narcissistic in that they tend to think about just themselves, and it's always about them. And if you teach them about those things, you can really inoculate them to being exploited and victimized. Narcissistic personalities are people that have a pervasive pattern of grandiosity. They have a really strong need for admiration and a lack of empathy beginning in early adulthood, and it's present in a variety of contexts. And they may have a grandiose sense of self-importance. They're preoccupied with fantasies of unlimited success and power. They believe that they're special. They require excessive admiration. They have a sense of entitlement, that they should get favorable treatment, and they should be able to get away with anything. And they're interpersonally exploitive. They just take advantage of everybody around them. And they lack empathy in that they're unwilling to recognize and identify the feelings of other people. And if somebody else is doing well, they're very envious of that. They're not happy for them. They're envious of it. And they show arrogant, haughty behaviors. Those are narcissistic personality traits. And I'm going to list those and put them on the website for you. And you need to tell them to watch for the antisocial personality as well. That's a pervasive pattern of disregard for and violation of the rights of others. It usually starts in the teens. They don't conform to social norms. They don't respect laws. They're deceitful, impulsive, irritable, aggressive, reckless, irresponsible. They don't feel remorse. I'm going to list those on the website for you, too. So what I'm wanting you to do is watch for these traits and characteristics in your own children so if you see them, you can intervene and teach them to watch for these in others so they pick their friends very, very carefully. I hope this tragic story of Aaron Caffey has actually been a cautionary tale. These were murders that didn't have to happen. You've been listening to the final episode of A Family Slaughtered for Teen Love, Mystery and Murder. Analysis by Dr. Phil.